Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. We talked uh, in setting up Acts and understanding kind of what the trajectory was of the gospel, that it was in fact on a trajectory, that God had a plan from the beginning for the way in which the word of God, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about what has been done, his death and his resurrection, to atone for our sins, that people might be saved by grace through faith, it had a trajectory. We saw this in Acts 1.8 when he told his followers before his ascension, Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel was on a trajectory. We saw that when the gospel wasn't moving forward from Jerusalem, God even helped it along by allowing persecution to come on the church so that they would be forced to spread out. And as they went, they proclaimed the gospel. And in fact, the gospel started going exactly where it was supposed to go. The gospel had a trajectory. I want to share with you perhaps another trajectory of the gospel that we don't often think about, but something that the early church definitely thought about. It's something that as we're going through Acts, we're going to see more and more that the Apostle Paul certainly thought about. And this is what I mean by that, that there's another trajectory of the gospel, which is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We see this over and over through the scriptures, but perhaps we don't think of it this way, probably because it's not often put in practice in our day. Uh, because the vast majority of Christians we know are Gentiles, it's non-Jewish people, and we probably know very few Jewish people who are believers. In fact, in our day, Jewish people tend to believe very differently and perhaps even have, you know, don't agree or don't or look down on things that Christians believe. And believe me, that's because there's a lot of bad history of things that Christians or people who represented Christ have done against the Jews. And so because of all of these things that have happened in history, we've kind of distanced ourselves from this notion of the gospel trajectory first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And so first of all, let me ask this question, why, why would the gospel be first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles? It might seem like a foreign concept to you. We got to explore this a little bit in Sunday school today. And we might be thinking, well, God is the God of the whole world, right? And the entire world has fallen in sin. The entire world is in need of reconciliation with God. So why would there even be this notion of a gospel trajectory first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles? And that's because of this, because while the entire world was in need of salvation, in fact, the very first promise of the Savior comes right at the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would come, he would crush the head of the serpent. In essence, it's implying that all that took place in the fall would be undone by he who was to come. And yet God accomplished this through a particular people group, the Jewish people who would be his instrument in bringing about the savior of the entire world. 
And see, God doesn't see people merely as a means to an end, but as an end in themselves. And what we read throughout the Old Testament is this, that God chose Abraham and his descendants, that they would be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And ultimately, we know that comes through Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, But for 2,000 years, from Abraham to Jesus, throughout the entirety of our Old Testament, we see God establishing covenant and upholding that covenant. We see God in relationship to this people group. We see God as their king. Even when a king is appointed to them, God is still leader over the nation of Israel. We see God leading them like a father. We see him disciplining them when they disobey and rewarding them when they obey. We see God speaking to them in numerous ways and at numerous times, whether it be through theophanies or sending prophets to this people. God loves his covenant people. And so when Jesus comes through this line, through Abraham, uh, through Jesus, a Jewish person, when he comes, he comes first to that covenant people that God has established this relationship with. Because while we perhaps see Jesus as the Savior, throughout this 2,000 years of God promising this one to come to the Jewish people, there were lots of other significances to this person who would come. He'd be a king in the line of David, literally ruling over David's throne over Israel. Isaiah 53 talks about him being a guilt offering, and we often use this passage to talk very broadly. But in truth, Isaiah 53 is talking about this one who would die as a guilt offering for the nation of Israel. And so many would be reconciled to God, many would be saved, many would be redeemed, forgiven, atoned for by this person within Israel. And so Jesus had a lot of significance for Israel, and God in his faithfulness sent him first to the Jews. Now, that's not to neglect the Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're a non-Jewish person in here today. Okay, I think that might be just about everybody except for me. Don't worry, you're not second-class citizens. God loves you too, and Jesus did come for you as well. And all the things we regularly celebrate are true for you. And we're going to see in this passage today that God has not lost sight of that. But perhaps what we've lost sight of is the fact that God also loves Israel and has not been unfaithful to his covenant people. I want to share this with you in case you're thinking, well, Kevin's really off base. I've never heard this first to the Jew, then to the Gentile thing. That just sounds a little weird to me. That rubs me wrong. Let me share with you just two passages. Here's the first one. Here's an example from Jesus' own ministry, Jesus' own teaching. Uh, Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. It'll be up on the screen. It says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Okay, pause for a moment. Let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. This is a non-Jewish person, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile. And she has a significant problem, a problem, in fact, that Jesus, time and time and time and time again throughout the Gospels, remedies. Jesus has intervened in in situations like this among the people of Israel. First, pick up at verse 23, says, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. 
He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now you might be thinking, wow, I don't remember that passage. That's a rather callous Jesus. It's not that Jesus didn't care. It's not that Jesus didn't have compassion. And in the end, he actually did reward her for her faith and went ahead and healed her daughter. But Jesus made a very important distinction in why and what his purpose was in coming. Now, the gospel of the good news, once he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, that gospel is a gospel for the whole world. But Jesus came first to the Jews, first to the people of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel has a trajectory. We see it even in Paul. He reiterates this concept in the beginning of his letter to the Romans, Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But then he qualifies that. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Again, God's blessings are for all people. Salvation is for all people, Jew and Gentile. But that doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't have a trajectory. So why do I bring that up today? I bring it up because our passage in Acts is going to put this rather vividly as we see the work of Paul. And in fact, the things that we see in Paul in this particular missionary journey, we're going to see over and over again as he goes to a new city, he begins first with the Jews and then with the Gentiles in accordance with this gospel trajectory that we've seen in the scriptures. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Acts 13, starting in verse 13. Normally I read a passage completely up front and then break it apart, but we have a long passage today, so I'm going to give it to you in chunks today. Uh, here's the first section, Acts 13, and we're going to read from verses 13 through 16. Here's what it says. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went, where they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Let me start with a little bit of context here as we begin our passage together. Paul is in the middle of what we would know, we will come to know as his first missionary journey. And I have a map up there for you. And so some of these cities I hope are a little bit familiar as we've been going through this so far, Acts chapter 13. Uh, but what we see is this, that Paul was in Tarsus, which is where he grew up. And Barnabas, as he was sent out from Jerusalem, went to get Paul and together they went to Antioch and they spent a good deal of time there. From there, we read last time we were together that the Holy Spirit selected Paul and Barnabas to go and serve him, serve the Lord. And so they went out. Uh, and so they went from Seleucia to Salamis and to Paphos and they end up in Pisidian Antioch in our passage today. So for those of you who are visual learners, uh, I gave you a map, you're welcome. 
So, yes, that's the 67th book of the Bible, the book of maps. So don't forget to avail yourself of it. Some good geography is important. So you can see how God spread the gospel through his servants. But one of the questions, one of the reasons I put the map up is because what always struck me as interesting is this. Wow. Paul's not in Israel. Paul's going out throughout the world, right? Paul, Paul's going all over the place to Greek areas and all kinds of areas, and yet everywhere he goes, there seems to be a synagogue. So why are there so many Jewish synagogues throughout the world, not just in Israel? And so for those of you who have been part of a background of the New Testament class, maybe you have an answer for this. For those of you who don't, since the time of the exile, both the exile of the northern kingdom in the 700s BC and especially the Babylonian exile in the 500s BC and the many conflicts that ensued uh, after that, Jewish people became, learned to live life apart from the land of Israel. And everywhere they, everywhere they settled, they would put up a synagogue where they can train the people in the scriptures. They would teach the young people. They would, they would sit and, and, and teach the Torah. They would have services. They would have times of prayer. These were community centers, if you will, where the assembly of Israel and each of these cities would gather together, especially on the Sabbath, but there were things going on throughout the week as well. And so at this point, hundreds of years have, have gone by since this kind of uh, dispersion from the land had begun. And so at this point, there were well-established synagogues in many of the places that we wouldn't normally think that they would be. Uh, and so Paul, in most of the places he went to, would find a Jewish community and, in fact, a synagogue where those Jews in that city would gather together. And again, they definitely met on the Sabbath, while they had other, things, other times they met as well. And so as Paul was going with this understanding of the gospel trajectory, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, and being a Jewish person himself, he would go to these synagogues as his first place of visit during his, his ministry in the various cities. Now, synagogues are not like this. You probably wish they were more like, like you probably wish our church was more like that, where the pastor didn't just get up and preach for a half hour. Uh, but there'd be reading of the Torah, there'd be reading from the prophets, and then there would be multiple people teaching, sharing, giving exhortation from the scriptures on the various passages that were discussed. And so Paul, being a visitor to this region, was invited to participate in this and given the ability to give an exhortation if he had one for the community of Israel there in the synagogue. And we know Paul takes advantage of these moments in which he did. So let's see what he had to say. Acts 13, starting in verse 17. Paul speaking. Remember, he said, uh, he motioned with his hand, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me, he said. And here's what he says, starting in verse 17. He says, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he adored their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as an inheritance. So why did Paul go into this? If Paul was talking to Jewish people, you would think, well, they already knew these things. So why is Paul spending so much time recounting these events from Israel's history? And I want to go ahead and say this, that what he's doing here is reminding the Jews of God's faithfulness through the many deeds that God has performed. Look at some of the things that he mentions here. 
He says that he chose Israel. He chose the ancestors of the Israelites. He made the people prosper while foreigners in Egypt. With a mighty power, he led them out. Even though they were being held as slaves under Pharaoh, by God's power, he led them out of that country. For 40 years, I love this, he endured their conduct. That's a nice way of saying they were royal pains in the behind. And yet God endured his, their conduct in that time. He then went ahead and overthrew seven nations, getting rid of them so that they might take possession of the promised land, the land that God had promised to their ancestors. And in fact, God did this, giving their land as an inheritance. Let me ask you, of this list of deeds, which one of these is Israel responsible for? None of them. Over and over and over again, God acted out of his faithfulness to the promises that he made despite the, 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 the conduct or the lack of deeds or, or who Israel was. It had nothing to do with them. It had to do with him and his faithfulness to his promises to them. And so Paul here is demonstrating that the God that they serve, the one true God, is a faithful God. God is faithful and his deeds have proven that. And this is Paul's introduction. Because as Paul goes on, he's about to disclose the greatest act of faithfulness that God has done. His keeping of the biggest promise to Israel and to the world, the Savior, Jesus. And we read this continuing in verse 20. He says, all this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached a repentance of ba and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And so Paul began by demonstrating through Israel's history that God is a faithful God. He has demonstrated it over and over and over again by his deeds to their people. And now he's going to say, God has demonstrated his faithfulness in the greatest, the most ultimate way by keeping his most important promise and bringing Jesus. And so Paul, in this latter section, is talking about the leaders of Israel. He's summarizing them because he wants to get to David. 
because David was the one through whom God promised he would bring about this Messiah. And it is through him and his line that Jesus came. More importantly, he was demonstrating that through one leader, David, God was going to bring this ultimate gift to Israel, this ultimate gift, in fact, to the entire world, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. We see this in verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. And so God made many promises to Israel throughout its history. This is not the only promise. He made many promises. Think of some of these. God promised to be their God and they his people. God promised them the land of Israel. God promised to make them into a great nation, to bless those who bless them, to curse those who curse them. God promised that he would never reject them, never go back on his word, that God would always keep his covenant. But long before God established his relationship with Israel, he also promised the entire human race that one would come, the, the seed of the woman who would essentially undo the effects of the fall. And so throughout Israel's history, God promised to them that this person was coming. And much has been prophesied about him, far more than just that. He would be a prophet like Moses. He would be the son of man who would judge the nations of the world. He would be a king in the line of David. He would be the Messiah, the anointed one. He would also be a savior who would die as a guilt offering, making atonement for the sins of Israel. And we know that he would die to make atonement also for the sins of the world. And Paul is proclaiming that this promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. And yet it's interesting, when, the, when Jesus came, the Jewish religious leaders, who we would think would be the first ones to recognize the Messiah when he came, they did not recognize him. And in their foolishness, they condemned him. And yet Paul draws a point here. He says, even though they condemned him, even though they did not recognize him, even though they were successful in sending him off to Pilate to have him executed, by doing that, they literally fulfilled everything that God said must happen in him so that the Savior can make atonement for sin. And Paul draws out the, the, the elements of the gospel here, that Jesus died and he rose Again, we see in verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. I want to pause for a second. We had a good conversation in Sunday school this morning. Uh, Sunday school, we tend to go over the passage that I'm going to be preaching on, and so there's more time for Q&A and for insight from people in the group. And one of the things we made sure we discussed was this, the gospel. And I've said this before, and, and I want to be clear. Um, you know, I know that there are many different things that we do in trying to share our faith with those around us. And I appreciate every, all the things that we do. If you have given out a track to somebody else, a gospel track, you know what? I'm glad you do that. If you ask a server at a restaurant, can I, is there anything I could pray for you for? That's great. I'm glad you do that too. If you invite somebody to church or to a church event or to youth group, I'm glad you do that too. But if you stop short at that, if that's the last thing you do in this gospel-centered dialogue, then you haven't really proclaimed the gospel. You haven't done what has been asked of you. You haven't finished your commitment to the Great Commission. Because we have to be willing also to proclaim the gospel. That because of sin, you are separated from God 
And yet God loved you enough to send Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for your sin, and he raised him to new life so that you might have right standing before him because of what Jesus has done. And so we are called to proclaim the gospel. And it's funny, as we go through Acts, we see over and over and over again that the same message is proclaimed in different ways to different people, but those elements are always there. That Jesus died for sins and that he rose again from the dead. And we need to be people of the gospel. And Paul is proclaiming that here. Because what he had was a synagogue full of Jewish people who were part of the covenant people of Israel, but had not yet recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior that was sent to them by God, who had died for their sins and had risen again to new life. And so they had to submit to him as Lord and receive all the blessings that God had been promising Israel for generations. You also had there Gentiles who were God-fearers or converts to to Judaism. And so you had two classes of these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who were participating in the Sabbath service at the synagogue. And so they were hearing these things, and perhaps they're not as familiar as the Jewish people with these promises from the Old Testament. And so they're hearing the gospel as well, and, and, and Paul is giving them an opportunity to respond. And I love this. Paul also goes on to defend the gospel that he's proclaiming. We read this starting in verse 32. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy uh, and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I love this. We live in a world right now where there are innumerable competing ideologies, innumerable, innumerable competing theologies, beliefs about God and his world. Even I don't believe God exists is theology, you realize that. And we live in a world where people have all kinds of ideas. And so while we know that what we believe about God is true, that the gospel is true, and we proclaim it, that doesn't mean that they're going to take it at face value. They have to know not just what the gospel is, but that it's true. In the same way that if a Mormon came to you today and said that Mormonism is true, I would really hope that you wouldn't just take that at face value and believe that. Same thing if a Muslim came to you and said Islam is true, I would really hope that you wouldn't just say on the account of them being perhaps a very persuasive person or sharing with you some quotes from the Quran that all of a sudden you just believe that. So why should we believe if we proclaim the gospel that other people should just accept it without any kind of evidence whatsoever? And Paul understands this. And so here, in a synagogue full of Jewish people, he doesn't just proclaim the gospel, but then he reasons with them from the scriptures, demonstrating to them from the Old Testament these, these promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the greatest evidence of all, the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead, and there are eyewitnesses to this very fact. The resurrection is evidence. 
And as we proclaim the gospel today, there is also abundant evidence of that Jesus is God, that the gospel is true. Going on in our passage, verses 38 to 41, it says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. And so Paul is not just proclaiming the gospel, Paul is giving them a choice. It's a choice that every single person has to be able to make. And so when we present the gospel, we need to be able to not just tell them what we believe, but we need to give them an opportunity to respond to it. And in fact, the more opportunities they have to respond to it, the more likely they are to accept it. We need to be able to give a choice. And so Paul presented a choice, and he also presented honestly the consequences of this choice. On the one hand, if they had put their faith and trust in Jesus, they would receive the forgiveness of sins that's promised under him. But if not, then we see here from this passage that he quoted, uh, look you scoffers, wonder, wonder and perish. And so we see right here the grave consequences for those who reject the gospel that he's proclaiming. And we're going to soon see in the conclusion of our passage here that different people made different choices on this particular day and in the subsequent weeks as Paul was ministering here. And we have to make the same choice for ourselves if we have not yet made it. And as we present the gospel to others, we need to give them the opportunity to make the choice. As we conclude our passage, verses 42 through 52, here's what it says. And it reiterates this theme that the gospel was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles Here's what he says. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is one of the things that catch me. There was a lot of interest in the gospel. We could get hung up on the fact that uh, those who were opposed to Paul were able to stir up some persecution and get them kicked out of the area. But even despite that, look what it ends with. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Man, if I just got kicked out of town for preaching the gospel, I probably wouldn't think that I'd be full of joy. But... They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit as they went. And why not? 
Because yes, there were those who were opponents of the gospel, but there were many others who came to faith. How do we know this? Because people were inviting them back, and next time there were more people. In fact, the whole town came out to hear what Paul had to say. That doesn't mean that everybody gave their life to Christ, but the Holy Spirit was doing something. People were responding to the gospel. There was interest in what was being proclaimed. And why do you think there was? If we were thinking of this in natural terms, why was there so much interest? Because there was a whole lot at stake. If the things that Paul was saying was true, then there's a lot on the line. And Paul communicated that effectively in his context. And one of the things we need to be thinking about is how do we communicate those truths well in our context. In many ways, we are in a post-Christian world right now. The, 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 the temperature of the relationship between the world and the church is not what it was 20 years ago. And perhaps that's a good thing. Because it's only in America that, you could, that, that, that it seemed to be that, you know, it was culturally in to be Christian at some point, or at least to hold Christian values. I mean, even from the times of the gospel onwards, Christianity is countercultural. And so perhaps now we're beginning to feel a little more of what it was always intended to be. And more and more we're aware of the lostness of our fellow man and the need to share the gospel. How do we communicate the gospel effectively in our culture? This is the question we need to ask. And one of the things we arrived at this morning in our Bible study is this, that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so it's important that as we're dialoguing with people, as we're establishing gospel-centered relationships, as we're sharing the truth with others, that we're doing so in a manner that's relevant to the people that we're sharing the gospel with. We need to do so, and we need to do so boldly, but we need to do so also in a way that's relevant to the person that we're speaking with. I think we also need to recognize that this, this command, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, is still important. Uh, you know, many of the Jews didn't believe here as Paul's proclaiming the gospel. Why? Why is that? Well, there's lots of reasons. Uh, here's just some of them. They would have expected their religious leaders to have embraced the Messiah. We've talked about this before. You know, when Jesus came, he engaged with the Pharisees. He engaged with the chief priests. In fact, it was the Sanhedrin that had committed, who had sent him off to Pilate to be condemned. And so, where were the religious leaders and their responsibility to recognize and promote him before Israel? And so one of the reasons that many Jews had a hard time believing, perhaps, is that the religious leadership didn't accept him. They expected the Messiah to overthrow the Romans and not be condemned by them, right? There was these, these promises all throughout the Old Testament that the one who would come, the king in the line of David, would rule in peace from David's throne. And this man was condemned by the Romans. If that's not a stumbling block, I don't know what is. And also, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that, 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 that says that anyone who is hung on a pole is condemned by God. Is, 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 and, so, and, and in Jesus' time, that was interpreted of all those who were crucified. And so they would have seen this man who was crucified and assumed automatically that he was condemned by God not that he was God's Messiah. And there were many other reasons. Just like in our day, we tend to think, oh, you don't believe the gospel? Well, you're going to get what you deserve. Yeah, but you know what? People have reasons. People have intellectual obstacles, things standing in their way. And we need to help identify them and speak to those things so that they might hear and respond to the gospel well. 
Uh, however, Paul, uh, God provides some insight through the Apostle Paul when it comes to the Jews and their, 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 even today, there's less Jews responding to the gospel than there, than there was in Paul's day. So what's going on here? And I, and I think that Paul puts this really well in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read you two verses. It says this, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Them being the Jewish people. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, because of their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So in other words, yeah. So because of their hard-heartedness toward the gospel, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. But even by that... The hope is that the Jews will be brought back through that and how great it will be at their full inclusion. In the same chapter, he talks about the God's covenant with Israel as, a, as an olive tree. And yes, some of the natural branches have been broken off. The Jewish people in unbelief and, and wild branches have been grafted in. But if God could graft in wild branches, how much more can he graft those original branches back into the tree. So God's not done with Israel, and I think it bears mentioning here too that I'm a Jewish person, and it was a Gentile who led me to faith in Christ. In fact, it was something about her life that made me pay attention. It was her concern for me and sharing the gospel with me and bringing me to church where I heard the gospel from other Gentiles and a Gentile preacher, and it was Gentiles who discipled me, and this might seem really ironic. But guess what? God is doing exactly what he said. And so the mission to the Jews isn't over, right? And we have a responsibility in that as well. And while it might seem like they're the hardest people to reach, God loves them, and therefore we ought to love them as well. So what, what can we conclude from all this? God is faithful. God is faithful, and he's demonstrated it over and over and over again through his many deeds. He's kept his promises to Israel. And so that we can trust that he will keep his promises to us because he has proven that he is a God who keeps promises. He's been faithful even when Israel has not been faithful. Tell me, raise your hand if that gives you hope that he has been faithful to the unfaithful. Because let's be honest, we're not always the most faithful. But God doesn't waver like we do. God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. So we can trust that his grace will abound to us when we stumble and when we fall. I'm reminded of passages like this, John's instruction in 1 John 1.9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm so glad this passage doesn't say, you know, if we confess our sins, he will judge us and condemn us forever because we're so stupid that we got the grace of God and then went ahead and sinned. That's not what he says. He says, when we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. He won't even just forgive us, but he'll purify us so that we don't continue to do those things that fall short of what his, he's called us to. We have a faithful God. Here's something else that we can conclude from this, that God desires to save. He has been working his salvific plan throughout all of history. He's prepared his people for Jesus' coming through the prophets. He raised up Paul and the other apostles and the entire early church and Christians throughout the entire last 2,000 years to proclaim the gospel to future generations. 
And he continues to use his people today to share the good news with others, even you and I. And finally, the gospel is still first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And if I'm being perfectly honest, this is something that we continue to overlook. In fact, I'm a Jewish person, and I have to be honest, if I look back to the last 10 people I shared the gospel with, none of them were Jewish. And this is something we need to remind ourselves of. This is something that we need to be obedient in as well. So how could we commit ourselves to this? We don't have a lot of Jewish people in Belgrade, but perhaps we need to look for opportunities to build relationships instead of seeing them as people who are different, people who won't want to be friends with me build relationships. But I encourage you this, if you have not shared the gospel with anybody, if you have not developed a new relationship for the purpose of introducing them to Jesus in the last three months, that is something that we all need to own, and that is something that we need to do better with. And God is faithful and just when we confess our sins to him, and he will purify us. He's already given you everything you need to share the gospel. Let's be faithful in that. Again, we want to change our country. We want to change it for the better. I'll tell you right now, I don't care if you get the best president in the world in the White House. Four or eight years later, he's gone. I don't care what law changes. Guess what? It's always possible that it's changed back. We don't fix our problems in government. That doesn't mean we don't vote. Of course we do. That doesn't mean we don't advocate for things. Of course we do. But... How is the world changed? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through lives transformed by him. That is the only way. Let's prepare other people for when the king comes back. Because we're going to get our great government, our great, you know, wonderful society. When Jesus comes, it'll be here. You have to do nothing to acquire that. Let's prepare people for when the king arrives. Thank you.